Mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally, according to John Kabat-Zinn. While the concept of mindfulness stems from ancient Buddhist teachings, its benefits are being scientifically applied all over medicine, and most researchers agree that we are barely scratching the surface. You are listening to ReachMD, XM, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Dr. Daniel Siegel, Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at UCLA School of Medicine. He is also the director of the Mindsight Institute, an educational organization that focuses on how the development of insight and empathy in individuals, families, and communities can be enhanced by examining the interface of human relationships and basic biological processes. Dr. Siegel has authored many books, his most recent being The Mindful Brain. Welcome to the show, Dr. Siegel. Thank you. I read your book. I tried to stay mindful throughout it. My mind did go away for some times, but I did enjoy the chapter where you talked about your experience of being quiet for one whole week. Can you talk about that? It was an amazing opportunity. I had just learned a little bit about mindfulness as a general concept and was encouraged to experience it directly. And the Mind and Life Organization was sponsoring the gathering of 100 scientists at a, an Insight Meditation program called the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And it was really, uh, apparently, the first time ever that 100 scientists gathered to study their own minds through mindfulness meditation. And I can tell you the details of it, but the, the take-home message is it was really startling to see what becomes clear when you're in silence for a week especially when you're surrounded by other people who you'd love to chat with, other scientists who are intriguing and you'd love to get into their heads and see what they're thinking. But, in fact, the rule is not only no speaking, but no nonverbal communication. So you're living in a community, in a small room, gathering for meditation sessions, starting at 5 in the morning, going till 10 at night, eating regular meals, but no communication, verbal or nonverbal. So what was the outcome? <laughs> you, went, you went insane. There were times when it felt like you're going insane. I mean, for me, you know, I was trained myself in medicine and in psychiatry and then as a researcher in relationships, in attachment relationships. So you, you need to understand that my own priming of my mind was both as a scientist and clinician, but also as someone very focused on the social nature of our brains. So that's just where I was at. So here you have me, generally a relatively social person, liking communication, but having to be quiet. And so the first day, I felt like there were these circuits in my own nervous system that were just aching to tune into other people, but I really wanted to respect the rules of the training. Uh, and so I didn't speak with anyone, and I didn't, for the most part, communicate with anyone. It's hard you know, when there are giggles and different things happening in the beginning, not to participate. But ultimately, what happened was there was a period of deep frustration, kind of a longingness to connect when you knew you weren't allowed to. And then this kind of wild realization that the mind is out of your control, that we usually are busy, busy, busy focusing on other people or other things, things we have to do, checklists, things, you know. But here was a week where the only thing you needed to do was focus your mind initially on your breath, returning your focus to it when it wandered, focusing on the sensations of the body. These are all different exercises. Focusing on some loving kindness, that is, uh, wishes, uh, wishing yourself well and wishing others well. And then doing walking meditation where you just focus on the bottom of your feet when your mind wanders from the bottom of your feet, returning the focus. 
And I'm talking literally five in the morning till 10 at night. And so by the second day, I really thought I was going insane because I really wanted to talk to people. I wanted to connect, but I couldn't. And I realized my mind was this wild stallion that I never knew was so wild. The thoughts would come in, and I knew I wasn't supposed to be having thoughts. And even when I knew the lesson was to not think, I would have a thought that I would have thoughts. I thought I was losing my mind. But by the third day, and especially into the fourth day, something really profound changed. The mind began to settle. And there wasn't so much an emptiness as often people think, oh, you meditate, you get an empty mind. It was quite the opposite of empty. It was more like spacious and stabilized. And for me, later on in reflecting on it, what I think was happening was all of the efforts to have an external focus, like on what other people were doing or thinking or things to do, you know, checklists to complete, all of that kind of got out of the way. And after three and four days of being quiet, suddenly the mind found its own rhythm and all of the social circuits of the brain, in my experience, instead of focusing on others, focused on myself. And as that internal kind of tuning in happened, everything kind of settled down. And I must say, things have been different since that week of silence because that clarity of mind, though sometimes it comes and goes, but in general has become more like a baseline for me since that time. And it's been really an amazing addition to a helpful quality of life because even in the chaotic busyness of things to do and kids at home and lots of patients to see and books to write and papers to do and deadlines and all that stuff, when you have this clarity of mind available to you, this stability where details become very clear, things settle down and you have this kind of open spaciousness of attention with a focus that comes very naturally, things are really different. And it helped me to understand why mindful awareness as a practice has not only been around for 2,500 years in the Buddhist tradition, but it's found in every tradition, East and West, every major religion, all, major, all the cultures of the world seem to have this practice of being aware of the present moment. And after a week of hanging out with these scientists uh, in silence, I came to really deeply appreciate the benefit of that because you take your usual habits and you kind of turn them upside down and the openness that your attunement creates to yourself where instead of it just being a crazy running around, you actually have this open, loving connection with yourself. In a way, you become your own best friend. And suddenly, there's almost like a giggling that happens because you realize, you know, you love to see your best friend for dinner maybe once a month, once a week, if you're lucky. You talk to him on the phone every now and then. What would happen if you came to realize that you lived with your best friend and it was yourself? And this is the deep, deep healing and transformative power of mindfulness. And I think it's why, as you mentioned, mindfulness is being used um, in all sorts of medical conditions as well as psychiatric conditions to improve if you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell, and I'm talking today with Dr. Daniel Siegel, author of The Mindful Brain. Dr. Siegel, have you had a chance over the years to read the book, The Power of Now? You know, I was given the tape of it and really enjoyed listening to uh, Eckhart Tolle himself on the tape. So I guess I've read the book in my ears. Yeah, 
So I, I enjoy that, yeah. So is there some similarities between his concepts of living in the present and becoming your best friend? Yeah, you know, I think they're extremely similar. I don't remember if he actually reflects on Buddhist practice or any particular religion. I think he just talks about it in his own experience. And I don't know if he uses the concept of becoming your own best friend or, you know, compassion for oneself. But I think the essence of what he talks about, if I remember correctly, is very similar. And I think people throughout literally thousands of years have been talking in various ways about this. In science, when we've tried to study it over the last 30 years, it's usually studied, understandably, as a way of developing attention. So mindful awareness as a form of awareness was studied as a new way of regulating your attention system. People then said, well, it's also a way of regulating your emotions. So they started sort of looking at emotion circuits. In my own experience, partly because I'm a therapist and partly because I'm a researcher in relationships, when I was introduced to this in a strange way because I used the concept mindfulness, just meaning being conscientious and intentional in your parenting, in a book called Parenting from the Inside Out, people would read Parenting from the Inside Out and they'd say, well, how are you teaching parents to meditate? I was never a meditator or anything or trained in that. And I would be puzzled by their question. And then they said, well, mindfulness is meditation. And I had to look up what mindfulness meditation was. And in looking at the research, it was all about attention and emotion regulation. But when I was looking at the deep layers of the research outcomes, they so much overlap with the outcomes for relational health, as in secure attachment, and this area of the brain, the prefrontal cortex that integrates everything, that to me, it seemed that mindful awareness obviously was a way of focusing your attention. It helped you regulate your emotions, but in its deepest core, it seemed to me it was a relational process, which wasn't being studied at all. And so I asked the question, is there any data that exists at this point that the social circuitry of the brain might be involved in mindful awareness states? And it turns out that there is quite a bit of data from studies not looking for relational aspects, but actually finding them serendipitously that suggests that mindful awareness is, in fact, a way of becoming your own best friend. In your book, you, you talk about three types of attachment patterns that, that kind of are inherited from our parents. Can you go into those three? And if we decide to meditate or become mindfully aware as an adult, can we unlearn those patterns? We don't have the data yet, and I, and I always urge people in PhD programs to look at that exact question you asked, because it would be a wonderful piece of scientific established data. I can give you the building blocks that we do know. So what do we know that supports the idea that, that your question is probably pointing to a very important principle? And here's what we know, that in attachment research, which doesn't look at the brain for the most part until recently, and, and certainly doesn't look at mindfulness, attachment research studies the way parents interact with children, and then looks at how those children develop over the lifespan. And we've recently, in attachment research, added adopted children, so we know that these principles hold true. So even genetics of personality researchers, Plowman, for example, have stated that attachment is not a DNA-related experience, that it is an experientially derived, as you use the word inherited, what we have to remember is you can learn things from your parents' behavior, and it looks like it's not genetically determined. And this is not just my opinion. This is a lot of scientific reasoning and a number of experts' views that is very, that maybe a little bit, but not a, that the vast majority of attachment is due to what a child experiences, not what they've inherited in their chromosomes. So we do learn, and it's passed across the generation. So there's familial patterns 
attachment, but they appear not to be DNA-based. Now, the reason to start with that is that your question is, can we unlearn patterns? And we know for a fact that patterns can be unlearned, that you can have an insecure form of attachment. So let me give you the broad picture. Secure attachment is found in about 55 to 65 percent of the non-clinical population, and it's basically where we believe parents have been tuned into their children. Generally, you know, everyone screws up sometimes, and you make it up, and you repair the disconnections, and, you know, there's no such thing as perfect parenting by any means. And even in parenting from the inside out, my co-author, Mary Hartzell, and I decided to put our own screw-ups as parents so people know it's just a hard job, and the idea is not perfection, but the intention for loving connection. I would like to thank Dr. Daniel Siegel for being our guest today on ReachMD. Dr. Siegel is the author of The Mindful Brain, and I'm Dr. Larry Casco. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and thank you for listening.